Hi, George Lavender here. Just a reminder that if you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and clicking on the big donate button. And if you haven't done so already, you can also rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks a lot. Here's the show. When you think of pride, parades and parties might come to mind. It might be hard to imagine that the worldwide LGBT celebrations were sparked by a neighborhood uprising in New York in 1969. At the time, the uprising was heavily criticized. But by 2014, even the president was paying tribute to what began that night at the Stonewall Inn. This year we mark the 45th anniversary of Stonewall, and I know some of you were there. And this tremendous progress we've made as a society uh, is thanks to those of you who fought the good fight, uh, and to Americans across the country who marched and came out and organized uh, to secure the rights of others. But how many of us really remember what happened back in 1969? On today's show, we'll hear about the day that galvanized a generation and the continued fight for LGBT civil rights. I'm Laura Flynn, and you're listening to Making Contact. The first Pride Parade took place in June 1970, marking the first anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. Michael Shirker brings us this oral history remembering Stonewall, the birth of a movement. In 1969, the Stonewall was one of the most popular gay bars in New York City, and, like all other gay bars, was routinely raided by the Vice Squad. The patrons of these bars, many of whom were frightened at having their identities revealed, would quietly submit to any orders coming from the police. Yet, on June 27, 1969, that all changed. The patrons of this bar, with the drag queens at the forefront, decided to fight back against the police. What happened here on that night would spark a revolution. My, uh, I am uh, Gene Harwood, and my age is 80. I'm um, Bruce Merrill. He wants, he also would like to know what your age is. So you My tell age? Him your age? 78? Mm-hmm. Yes. When you touched me, when you took my hand, something happened I um, had never planned. Being gay before Stonewall was, was a, a very difficult proposition because we felt that in order to survive, we had to try to look and act as, as straight as possible. The uh, attitude, the general attitude of society as far as employers were concerned and landlords, all of these people were very uh, hostile and, and uh, to protect ourselves, we, we had to act as, as rugged and, and manly as possible. Name is Sylvia Rivera. My name before that was Ray Rivera until I started dressing in drag in 1961. The era before Stonewall was a hard era. There was always the gay bashings on the drag queens by heterosexual men, women, and the police. My name is Seymour Pine. In 1968, I was assigned as deputy inspector in charge of public morals in the first division in the police department, which covered South Manhattan from 38th Street to the Battery, including the Greenwich Village area. It was the duty of public morals to enforce all laws concerning vice and gambling, 
including prostitution, narcotics, and laws and regulations concerning homosexuality. My name is Rev Mahoney. I've been hanging out, drinking, partying, and working in the gay bars for the last 30 years. In the era before Stonewall, all, all of the bars, 90% of the bars, were mafia-controlled. They were controlled because the mafia had the right connections. There wasn't, there wasn't that many gay bars. You'd have maybe one, two uptown in the Upper East Side. They would get closed down, and there'd be one or two on the West Side. They'd get closed down, and Midtown, there'd be one, two, three, maybe open. As they would get closed down, they'd move around, and they would dump. I'm Joan Nessel, co-founder of what is now the largest collection of lesbian culture in the world. The police raided lesbian bars regularly, and they did it, they both did it in the most um, obvious way, which was hauling women away in paddy wagons, but they did, there was regular weekend harassment, which would consist of the police coming in regularly to get their payoffs. And in the sea colony, we had a back room with a red light, and when that red light went on, it meant the police would be arriving in around 10 minutes. And so we all had to sit down at our tables, and we would be sitting there almost like school children. And the cops would come in. Now, depending on who was on, which cop was on, if it was some that really resented the butch women, who were with many times very beautiful women, we knew were in for it because what would happen is they would start harassing one of these women and saying, ha, you think you're a man, come outside, we'll show you. And the woman would be dragged away. They'd throw up against a wall and they'd say, so you think you're a man, let's see what you got in your pants. And they would put their hand down her pants. On Friday night, June 27, 1969, at about 11.45, eight officers from Public Morals 1st Division loaded into four unmarked police cars. From their headquarters on 21st Street and 3rd Avenue, they headed downtown and then west towards the Stonewall Inn here at 7th Avenue and Christopher Street. It was the second time the bar was raided that week. The local 6th Precinct had just received a new commanding officer who kicked off his tenure by initiating a series of raids on gay bars. And New York was in the midst of a mayoral campaign, always a bad time for homosexuals. Mayor John Lindsay had good reason to agree to the police crackdown. He had just lost his party's primary and needed a popularity boost. And the Stonewall Inn was indeed an inviting target. Operated by the Gambino crime family without a liquor license, this dance bar drew a crowd of drag queens, hustlers, minors, and more masculine lesbians known as bull dykes. Many were black or Hispanic. It was almost precisely at midnight that the Moral Squad pulled up to the Stonewall Inn, led by Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine. For some reason, things were different this night. As we were bringing the prisoners out, they were resisting. One drag queen, as we put her in the car, opened the door on the other side and jumped out, uh, at which time uh, we had to chase that person and uh, he was caught, put back into the car, he made an another attempt to get out the same door, the other door, and uh, at that point we had to handcuff the, uh, uh, the person. From this point on, things really began to get crazy. 
My name is Robert Rivera, and my nickname is Bertie, and I've been cross-dressing all of my life. I remember the night of the riots. The police were escorting the queens out of the bar and into the paddy wagon. And there was this one particularly outrageously beautiful queen with stacks and stacks of Elizabeth-style, Elizabeth Taylor-style hair. And uh, she was asking them not to push her. And they continued to push her, and she turned around and she mashed the cop with her high heel. She knocked him down, and then she proceeded to frisk him for her the keys to the handcuffs that were on her. She got them, and uh, she undid herself and passed them to another queen that was behind her. Well, that's when all hell broke loose at that point. And then we were, we had to get back into the Stonewall. My name is Howard Smith. On the night of the Stonewall riots, I was a reporter for the Village Voice, locked inside with the police, covering it for my column. It really did appear that that crowd, because we could look through little peepholes in the plywood windows, we could look out and we could see that the crowd, well, my guess was within five, 10 minutes, it was probably several thousand people now, two to 2,000, easy. And they were yelling, kill the cops police brutality, let's get them, we're not going to take this anymore, let's we get them. We noticed a group of uh, persons uh, attempting to uproot uh, one of the uh, parking meters in which, they, in which they did succeed. And they then uh, used that parking meter to, uh, as a battering ram to break down the door. And they did, in fact, open the door they crashed it in, and at that point was when they began throwing uh, Molotov cocktails into the place. There were a couple of cops stationed on either side of the door with their pistols, like in a combat stance, aimed in the door area. A couple others were stationed in other places, behind like a pole, another one behind the bar, all of them with their guns ready. I don't think up to that point I ever, had ever seen cops that scared. When the Morrill Squad officers barricaded themselves inside the Stonewall, Deputy Inspector Pine put in a 1041 call, an emergency help request which can only be placed by a high-ranking officer. That call was mysteriously canceled, and the telephone inside the Stonewall went dead. It took nearly 45 minutes for the riot police to get to the Stonewall and rescue the Morrill Squad from the smoldering bar. My name is Martin Boyce. And in 1969, I was a drag queen known as Miss Mort. I remember on that night, when we saw the riot, police, all of us drag queens, we linked arms, like the Rockettes, and sang the song we used to sing. We are the village girls. We wear our hair in curls. We wear our dungarees above our nelly knees. And the police went crazy hearing that, and they just immediately rushed us. We gave one kick and fled. My name is Rudy. And uh, the night of the Stonewall, I was 18. And to tell you the truth, that night I was doing more running than fighting. I remember looking back from 10th Street. And there on Waverly Street, there was a police, I believe, on his uh, cop, and his, on his stomach in his tactical uniform and his helmet and everything else with a drag queen straddling him. She was beating the hell out of him with her shoe. My name is Mama Jean, uh, I'm a lesbian, and I guess you would label me as a butch. I remember on that night, I was in a gay bar, a women's bar, called Cookies. 
we were coming out of the gay bar, going toward 8th Street. And that's when we saw everything happen. Blasting away, people getting beat up, police coming from every direction, uh, hitting women as well as men with their nightsticks. Uh, gay men running down the street with blood all over their face. We decided right then and there whether we scared or not. We didn't think about it. We just jumped in. The media covered the riot extensively. The Daily News featured it on its front page. There were reports on all the local television and radio stations. By the next day, graffiti calling for gay power had appeared on buildings and sidewalks all over the West Village. Hastily worked up flyers distributed on street corners touted the night as the hairpin drop heard round the world. And the next night, thousands of men and women converged on the West Village. They came here, back to the stone wall, to see what would happen next. While trash cans were set on fire, stones were thrown, and sporadic fighting broke out between police and gays, the more than 400 riot police milling around the village ensured that the previous night's violence would not be repeated. But on this night, for the first time, gay couples could be seen walking hand in hand or kissing in the streets. Just by being there, surrounded by reporters and photographers and onlookers, thousands of men and women were proclaiming to themselves and the rest of the world that they were gay. And the crowds grew and came back the next night and for one more night the following week. What happened here on those nights helped to usher in a new era, both personally and politically, for gay men and lesbians. My name is Jim Forat. And I'm in the mid-60s, along with Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, I was one of the founders of the, of the Yippie movement. I remember on the third night of the riots, there was this meeting called by Mattachine Society at St. John's Church on, West, on Waverly Place. We went, and Randy Wicker was running the meeting. For 10 years, I've been going on television as Randy Wicker, uh, a respectable homosexual dressed in dark suit and tie explaining to people that most homosexuals look like everybody else and behave like everybody else. And uh, when Stonewall began happening, you had chorus lines of queens kicking their heels up at the police, and bonfires burning in the uh, corner trash baskets and throwing bricks and stones at the police. I was horrified because this violated everything that we thought of as responsible behavior, that this was not the way respectable citizens behaved. Evelyn Hooker was a sociologist, I believe. Randy had introduced her and she got up and she suggested that we should have a candlelight march, that we should turn the other cheek because gay people were really different, we were really nice, and we had to show how nice we were and stop all this rioting because people were going to get hurt. I remember I stood up and I said, no, we are not going back. And, and people felt the same thing I felt. And we marched out of that room, and that was the night that the Gay Liberation Front was born. That night, in some very deep way, we finally found our place in history. Not as a dirty joke, not as a doctor's case study, not as a freak, but as a people. Remembering Stonewall was engineered by Spider Blue. It was produced by David Isay with a grant from the Pacifica National Program Fund. I'm Michael Shirker.
That piece was made available to us courtesy of the Pacifica Radio Archives. To hear the full-length version, visit pacificaradioarchives.org. What began with Stonewall still continues today. After the break, we'll hear from Michelangelo Signorelli on what it will take to get an LGBT civil rights bill. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to download shows or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. So you might remember the controversy around Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Critics argued the law would have allowed businesses to discriminate against same-sex couples, but supporters said it would protect individuals following the tenets of their faith. Following a massive backlash, including a threat from several businesses to leave the state, Governor Mike Pence approved a fix prohibiting businesses from refusing to serve people based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Editor-at-large of the Huffington Post, Gay Voices, Michelangelo Signorelli, says while the reversal in Indiana was among a series of recent wins for the LGBT rights movement, bigotry remains a daily reality. At a New America NYC forum, Signorelli spoke with June Thomas, culture critic and editor of Outward, Slade's LGBTQ section, about what he calls victory blindness. It's a central theme in his new book titled, It's Not Over, Getting to Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. One of the main ideas that you return to throughout the book is the concept of victory blindness. What do you mean by that? Well, I really started to sort of see um, several years ago a kind of a disconnect between the celebrations of, of victory that we've had and the facts on the ground for so many people across the country. And a lot of this was what I was hearing on my show from mm -hmm. people and connecting with people online. And I felt like uh, the media, the establishment, a lot of LGBT activists, they weren't kind of getting how there was this disconnect. And I found it very troubling. And I really saw how people kind of focus on the wins focus on the victories, and it almost becomes a, a sort of a psychological thing where you protect yourself by not focusing on the continued bigotry, mm -hmm. uh, by not looking at that, and that's where you sort of become blind to it. You, you don't see it. You're only focusing on the wins, everything getting better. It's going to get better. It's going to uh, all be great, and not seeing how the backlash is organizing and how people are experiencing hardship all across the country. They're still deeply closeted. They're still uh, dealing with bullying. If they're young people, there's still far too many uh, taking their lives. So that's victory blindness. Mm -hmm. Is it really so bad for us to focus on the good, the good news in our community? No, I, I think it's important to celebrate the good news. It's when we focus on the wins and, and don't see the gathering storm out there. Uh, don't see the organizing that's going on or downplay it. People convince themselves we've won so much. That's the other thing, that we've won so much that it's at risk, mm -hmm. that we better be careful and not rock the boat. So then we start to pull back on the approach and we, we start to say, let's be magnanimous. This word magnanimous has 
crept up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I talk about it in that first chapter with Mozilla and Brendan Ike, the uh, CEO who stepped down. And, and too many of our people were saying, this looks bad that he stepped down because he was a homophobe. Uh, and I just found something problematic with that. And they said, well, we should be magnanimous in our wins. Uh, we've had a banner two years. This was another one. Well, banner two years, what is that? <laughs> we need civil rights in this country. So I think there's a lot of that kind of talk. You also say that, this is a quote now, gay people have always needed to be confrontational in order to make great strides forward. Um, First, I'm wondering, do you, know, do you still think that today? I mean, it's kind of easier to, to think about being confrontational 45, 30, 15, 10 years ago. Shouldn't we be, no, I'm not going to say shouldn't we be magnanimous, but um, it's, first of all, it's hard to get people to be confrontational. There's a resistance to doing that. Mm -hmm. um, but do we still need to be confrontational? We do. We still need to uh, be very assertive and challenge and demand uh, full civil rights. I think we got on this road of asking for piecemeal rights that really did not serve us at all. I mean, I think, I think in the 70s and 80s, uh, early 80s, we were sort of more demanding in that sense. Uh, we were asking for a full civil rights bill, a federal civil rights bill. And then we got on this road of, well, there's been a backlash. Anita Bryant came, and AIDS came, and all these ugly people came, and let's just ask for this little piece of legislation with religious exemptions, and it was the non-confrontational ap approach. And, you know, let's, let's just sort of, uh, you know, ask for little piecemeal things. And I think ACT UP, certainly, and other groups showed us that, no, you need to be confrontational, but not just with direct action and, and protests, which I still think is very important, but also in what you demand. You, you need to demand all of it, otherwise you're not taken seriously. It seems really difficult to drive something like a LGBT Civil Rights Act, which has been attempted now for decades, for more than 20 years, right? But why can we sort of mobilize a protest but not somehow grab yeah, civil rights? We, we won a media battle, and that's mm -hmm. what keeps happening now, these media battles. But have we won any rights out of that? Mm -hmm. the, the law in Indiana was mitigated slightly, uh, but it's still broader than the federal uh, RINFA. It, and in Indiana, there is no statewide law protecting people. You know, yes, there are in localities, in some cities, Indianapolis, but Local ordinances are toothless. They don't really do much. You need a statewide law, you need a federal law. So um, there was no win there. Arkansas, what got lost in the entire thing, under the radar, with none of the gay groups, HRC, Human Rights Campaign, the media, nobody, and grassroots activists were, were screaming for attention. Uh, under the radar, the Arkansas legislature passed a bill that rescinded all existing local ordinances and the ability to pass any others. So basically, you cannot even pass a law in Little Rock to protect uh, LGBT people, but they worded it in a way to get around the Supreme Court's ruling on this with the Colorado case many years ago. Um, they got around this by not naming LGBT people. So they said, unless you're, you're a group that's already protected in state law, you can't pass a local law. So it becomes this circular, <laughs> circular mm -hmm. thing. Um, none of that got discussed in this. So Arkansas didn't need a RINFRA 
Totally. That was overkill on the part of the governor to completely pander um, to bigotry. And in the end, we have both states with no civil rights, and we won a battle where Walmart came out and spoke with us, spoke for us, and then mm -hmm. they're giving money to Ted Cruz tomorrow. Right. So, you know, they're, they're, all of those companies are still giving money to um, anti-gay politicians. So what can we do to get those civil rights laws, those positive laws passed? Because it has been 20 years. Why can't uh, Yeah. What's this, how do we do that? Well, we need to, this gets us back to being confrontational. Mm, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, we need to really be uh, organizing at every different level. And we have so many ways now that we can organize uh, in addition to, you know, protest um, out on the streets. I mean, we have so many different ways to organize online and, and pressure uh, entities. I mean, we should have been, and there should be an organized campaign, and our national group should be organizing people to now, you know, target these companies and these politicians to actually pass the laws that right, we right, need. Right. I say we need to, um, you know, organize in Washington more. We need to put ourselves out there. We need to engage in civil disobedience. We need to do all of the things we did in the old-fashioned way, uh -huh. and we also need to do all the new stuff uh, online and really kind of try to galvanize people. So let's talk about some of those terrible laws that are on the books already. Um, you write in the book about, I believe it's nine states that have no promo homo laws, as they're called. What are those, and what does that even mean? Right. Well, um, this gets to really another sort of long-term strategy and why it's really far from over, because what we really have to do to battle homophobia transphobia uh, is change and revolutionize education, uh, change how people are taught from K through 12 about uh, queer people and about homosexuality, about gender identity, about sexual orientation, and also what California has started, and they're the only state, uh, and it really hasn't started yet, the textbooks I think are coming out this year, but talking about the contributions of prominent LGBT individuals in history, um, we really need to make it so that people don't go in the closet. <laughs> that, that has to be the way we battle the closet. Um, and we really need to start teaching about uh, the reality of, of who we are. But um, obviously, that's going to be difficult um, in and of itself, but it's even more difficult because we have a bunch of states where actually they ban even any discussion of homosexuality. Uh, Arizona is one of them, Mississippi is another. Uh, Tennessee tried to pass it, and everybody knows that was called the Don't Say Gay Bill, and it blew up as a huge controversy, and thankfully that was uh, something that didn't become a reality. But we have to get those other states to repeal theirs, and then we have to move on this really difficult task of passing laws that would actually incorporate it into the teaching in the way that the African-American civil rights movement is taught in school. Mm -hmm. So what can we do to kind of, to engage more people? Well, I, I think it's true in every movement. It's always a few people doing everything, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's always a small crowd. And if you think about it, even during the most dark and horrible days of AIDS, it was still just this small group of people who would get in the street and protest, right? 
Um, but that small group, you know, if it was a thousand people at a protest, were able to do uh, enormous things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's always going to be, um, as with every movement, a small activated group. But um, what people are able to do, and I, and I think we've seen it, you know, with, with every group, I think we just saw it with Ferguson and, and, and other issues for African-Americans, um, cap, really capitalize on these events to bring in new people. And you know, you have people say, you're exploiting a, a suicide. No, we are using this horrible event of, that portrays the, the bigotry we uh, live with to activate people. Mm -hmm. That is what we are doing. Um, each time you do that, I think it brings in more people and it, it activates them, and, and they, you know, everybody has their story who's an activist of what it was, what mm -hmm. event it was that brought them in. Right. So we have to use those events. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Thanks to New America NYC for making that piece available. To hear the whole interview with Michelangelo Signorelli, go to newamericanyc.org or our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcasts, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Laura Flynn. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.